My mic's on now? All right. Hey, church, let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We'll continue to explore this particular uh, passage as we've been doing the past uh, couple of weeks to continue to prepare our hearts for this Advent season and to continue to learn what it means to wait upon the Lord, what it continue to means to look to Him for our joy and our hope. Um, and we've been considering this, this passage in Isaiah chapter 9 the past couple of weeks, and now we're getting to verses 4 and 5. And in Isaiah 4 through 7, Isaiah is answering a question. Notice if you're looking at the passage, in most translations, each verse in 4 through 7 begins with the word for, meaning because. Isaiah is explaining something. He's giving three reasons for something. So naturally, we should ask, what question is he answering or asking and then answering? Or what is he explaining? Well, before we answer that directly, it's important to keep in mind that Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 is actually divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 3 describes that hope has come, namely that light has penetrated the darkness and that joy has overcome the gloom of God's people. Verse 4 through 7 explain how hope has come. God has saved his people through the birth of a child king, a son that has been given to God's people is the one who brings this hope. And so Isaiah describes hope, and then he explains it. So he essentially says, hope is here, and then explains something about that hope. So the question then, which is answered in these three consecutive fours in verses four through seven, is how has hope arrived? How has hope arrived? And that's what this season is all about. The, the advent or the arrival of hope, whom we know to be, is Jesus Christ. See, Isaiah explains that hope has arrived really in three critical ways, using this language of for or because consecutively. That God has delivered his people from captivity, God's people have entered into victory, and that God's son is a king who rules unlike any other king. We might say it this way, that hope comes through deliverance, through victory, and a kingdom. Hope comes through deliverance, a victory, and a kingdom. So naturally, we should be curious then, if that's how hope has come, if that's how Isaiah is explaining uh, what hope looks like or what hope is for God's people, then what is it that we've been delivered from? Which victory or what victory have we won, or at least are we enjoying the spoils of, and of what kingdom is God talking about or is Isaiah talking about? I'd like to explore today those first two, those first two ideas of deliverance and victory here in this second portion of Isaiah chapter 9, and begin to answer the third, because I couldn't help myself, <laughs> begin to answer the third about the king and the kingdom, which we'll explore more on Christmas Eve. See, in, in this passage, I think Isaiah is ultimately getting at the idea of freedom. And freedom, according to the Bible, if I can be so bold, is very different and the life of freedom is very different from the various cultures that are represented within our church and the various people that are part of our, our nation and country. Freedom looks a lot different when you look at the Scriptures. I'd like to talk about this freedom then today. That's, I think, what we need to talk about. When we read something in the Scriptures that is very different from our experience in this world, we ought to consider it deeply. And I think ultimately what it comes down to is that the Bible speaks about a freedom which comes from the right restrictions. So in order to, I think, better understand this, we need to look at a few things today. This type of freedom that comes from the right restrictions as opposed to what we might think is being unrestricted. Freedom 
to understand this, we need to talk about three different things. Three different things as it relates to freedom that the Scriptures teach about, and Isaiah here particularly teaches about. The story of freedom, the obstacles uh, of freedom, and the restrictions of freedom. So the story of freedom, the obstacles of freedom, and the restrictions of freedom. You see, we, we have a story as followers of Jesus, as the people of God, we have a story of freedom. But there are prevailing obstacles, if you will, that keep us from enjoying, I think, the life of freedom that God has given to us, that he extends to us. Yet the good news of Jesus Christ is that there are eternal truths that hold us in this freedom despite these obstacles. That's really good news. So despite the obstacles that you and I face as it relates to freedom, there is a truth about who God is and what he has accomplished for us that holds us in this freedom regardless of what we are experiencing. And so if the question is, how has hope arrived? The simple answer that Isaiah gives us for today is that hope has arrived through freedom. And with that in mind, let's pray. Let's ask for God's help as we come to this particular passage and this idea today. Heavenly Father, something like freedom causes our mind to go in a number of different directions, whether it relates to the language of our country, the story of our particular people group, or what it even means to express who I am to the world. And so we just acknowledge that uh, as a church family, our minds are going into a lot of different places. And so regardless of where our minds uh, have impulses to go, would you draw us to your word? Would you draw us to an ever-increasing familiarity with your kindness, with your grace, with your truth, with your power and your word? Help us today to be centered on your word. We love that, Father, though we may be distant physically today, we are held together by your spirit and by your word as a church family. To be sure that's true of us as church in the square, but it is also true of the universal and invisible church of of all your people of all time. And so we thank you that your word binds us together. And so help us to submit to your word. Help me, Father, to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. I have done my best to prepare, and yet, Father, your will be done, not what I have prepared be done. Your will be done in this moment in the lives of my sisters and brothers. We thank you, God, that as you speak to us, something happens in our souls, something happens in our hearts, in our minds. We're corrected, we're comforted, we're changed, we're transformed, we are made new. And so we are eager for this, God, as we have sung the truth from your word and prayed in accordance with your word and even gathered according to your word. We thank you that your word is faithful and does not return without accomplishing your intentions. So complete in us your desire and your will today, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and wherever you are, and they said, and we said, amen. So freedom is a defining story in ancient Israel. They are a people who were, in fact, and in actuality, freed from slavery. This liberating work became so fundamental to God's people that just before God gives the Ten Commandments, before he says, here's how you're supposed to live, here's how God describes himself and describes his his people in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. See, God's people here are instructed to see themselves as a people who have been freed from slavery. Not only that, but God's people are instructed to see God as a God, as the God who freed them from slavery. 
See, there's something very human and I think very natural about this. After all, our identities, are they not simply a compilation of stories that we tell ourselves and that we tell ourselves about each other? And theology, in many respects, is the, the summary or summation of all the stories and ideas that we think and believe about God. See, stories tell us who we are. Stories tell us who God is. So freedom, then, is fundamental to Israel's self-understanding, and freedom is also fundamental to Israel's understanding of God. Are you tracking with me? Freedom is central to our self-understanding, and freedom is central for our understanding of God. So with this in mind, let's look back at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 4. Here's what Isaiah says. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, so when Isaiah speaks like this, he's speaking, if you will, with this insider language in a way that everyone would have recognized that he was writing to. What might seem perhaps for us 2,000 years or really 2,700 years later or so, give or take maybe a year or two, what, what may seem to us to be very broad, poetic, and vague language is actually very clear articulation for God's people of their story and identity. They know what Isaiah is talking about. When he uses words like yoke and burden and staff and rod and oppressor, their minds immediately would go to their Egyptian captivity. They would have understood what he was talking about. He's talking about their story of liberation. If I can be so bold, with this in mind, understanding how quickly this would have come to the minds of God's people in ancient Israel, I believe that one of the greatest issues in the church today, particularly in the American church, is that we are a people who have forgotten that we were slaves. We are a people who have forgotten that we once were captive. In other words, we don't remember our story, church, and therefore we don't fully grasp our identity. One of the reasons we constantly are, grasped, are, are struggling with who we are is we've forgotten what God has done. We have forgotten who he is and what he has accomplished in our lives. In other words, I think that we have privileged spiritual memories. This is nothing new. Isaiah also, or, or not Isaiah, but Israel, I mean, Isaiah might have, but Israel in particular, often forgot their story of liberation and their, and their identity. That's why, according to some estimates, there are over 90 references in the Old Testament to God reminding his people that he is the God who brought them out of Israel, or out of Egypt, rather. Places in Judges and Jeremiah and Micah, riddled throughout the entire Old Testament, are these reminders from God to his people, am I not the God who brought you out of Egypt? In other words, when their backs are against the wall, when they're worrying, when they're fretting, when they're sweating, when they're upset, when they don't know what's going to happen, God comes back with their story and their identity and his identity. Am I not the God who? I wonder if you need to hear that today. I know I do. Through the disappointments, frustrations of this year, through whatever has even been taking place this week in your life, I wonder if God simply does not want to look you right in your heart and say, am I not the God who brought you out of slavery, out of captivity? Am I not the God who saved you? See, there's something about what God has done in our past that reminds us who he is and who we are in him. Now, why would Israel need this reminder? Why do we always need this reminder of who God is and what he has done? Especially if freedom is so fundamental to our self-understanding and to Israel's self-understanding and to our understanding of God. 
I think it's because the further from our chains we go, the easier it is to convince ourselves that they never existed. The further from our chains we go, the easier it is to convince ourselves that they never existed. I think it's one of the reasons when Paul is writing the Colossian church, when he's in bondage in Rome, he, he writes them simply this near the end of that letter, remember my chains. Remember my chains. In, in other words, probably the adage today is out of sight, out of mind. If, if we forget from whence we came, we begin to behave differently. And, and I think one of the reasons that we need to be reminded of who God is and what he is able to do is because the further from our chains we get, the easier it is to forget that they ever existed. See, what, but when we forget, when we forget our chains, we actually forget our need for liberation. We forget the story of our need to be rescued from something. And in many respects, we can remain then in a particular kind of captivity. After all, this is not our only our understanding of ourselves, but of God. That This life then, when, when life binds us up, when, when we are in, enslaved to sin or to addiction or to our pain or to shame or to a, a corrupt justice system, when these things begin to bind us up and hold us, if we have forgotten that our God is the God who freed us, then we will be a people who live without hope. And so Isaiah and other biblical writers continue to draw on the collective imagination of God's people, reminding them they were in chains and God removed the yoke of their burden. God shattered the staff upon their, that was upon their weary shoulders and that God destroyed the rod of the oppressor. It's a story and identity, I think, that our black brothers and sisters have embodied in this country from its inception. Octavia V. Rogers Albert was a black author and biographer, and in books like The House of Bondage, she collected stories of people who were enslaved, and she recorded them lest we forget. In one such uh, book, she recorded this person's story who said, Aunt Jane used to tell us, too, that the children of Israel was in Egypt in bondage and that God delivered them out of Egypt. And she said, he would deliver us. We all used to sing hymns like this. He delivered Daniel from the lion's den, Jonah from the belly of the whale, the three Hebrews' children from the fiery furnace, and why not deliver me too? Do you see, if we forget that we have been freed, and, that, and that's part of our identity as God's people, if we forget that we have been freed by God, we'll forget that God is a God who frees us, that God is the God who frees us. As scholar Esau Macaulay observed that God's power to, to liberate Israel gave black Christians a vision of, here's what he says, a God who delighted in liberation, and this gave them hope. One of the reasons we don't live in freedom, one of the reasons I believe we don't live with hope, according to Isaiah here, is that we have forgotten that we have been saved from slavery. We've forgotten that we have been rescued from captivity. The story and identity of freedom only gives us hope when we remember our chains and the God who broke them. That's the story of freedom, and, and I think why we forget. Now, what are the obstacles of freedom? See, I think the obstacles are actually wrapped up in that forgetfulness that we've had to concede. We forget our chains and, and even think that's a good thing, right? Particularly in our sort of modern psyche, we want to think positive thoughts and happy thoughts as sort of like Disney mentality, right? That you can fly, you can, all right? Just think happy thoughts and everything will be okay. 
But we need to admit the brokenness and pain from whence we've come so we understand the God who rescues us from such things. See, as we've already mentioned, before the Lord spoke the Ten Commandments, He reminded His people who He was and who they were. He is a God who freed them. They are a people who had been freed. But then He lays out rules or commands for them to live by. That's really interesting. Things that make you say, hmm, right? God reminds them of their freedom and what he has done, and then he tells them how to live. This, of course, is incredibly counterintuitive to us 21st century Christians that live in a modern society in a progressive city like Chicago, right? Freedom, according to the Bible, is fundamentally different than our culture and our own consciousness conceives of freedom. See, we all think about freedom as the absence of restriction. We convince ourselves that freedom is the power and opportunity to, to do and to choose and be as we please. And to be fair, in modern society, we usually have this caveat, right, that says you can do and say as you please as long as it doesn't impinge on someone else's ability to do and say as they please or it doesn't hurt anyone. I think this is incredibly ironic, if not hypoc hypocritical, that this is the way we talk about freedom. Why? Because we essentially say there are no universal rules to freedom except, and whenever there's an exception to there is none, we've essentially admitted that there actually are universal rules to freedom. We just don't like some of them. See, God tells us something very different about freedom when we open the Scriptures. See, within the gift of God's liberating work and the story of our identity and freedom, God says this in Deuteronomy 12, everything that I command you you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. In other words, what's God saying to us? I'm the God who freed you not to do and say and be as you please. I'm the God who freed you. Now you need to listen. Therefore, you can do and say what pleases me and what I say to you. This goes against the grain of something might be firing off in our hearts and minds right now. That doesn't feel very freeing. But freedom in God is restrictive. Specifically, freedom in God is bound to his word and bound up in his will and his commandments and his righteousness. Church, the gospel is not an announcement of going from chains to no chains. Rather, the gospel is the good news that the wrong restrictions that were killing and crushing your soul have been destroyed and the right restrictions which bring you life have been put on by grace. This is how the Apostle Paul summarizes it. If you remember from our study in Romans, Romans chapter 6, Paul says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become, hear this, slaves of righteousness. Do you see? Freedom comes from the right restrictions, not freedom from restriction. Freedom comes from the right restrictions, not freedom from restrictions. And I think this is where the obstacles of freedom come into focus for us. So I want to holler at your heart a little bit right here. Make sure that we hear what God is saying in this. In other words, we see a couple of responses, I think, that begin to creep up when we hear this good news from Jesus. I think we, we hear and see shame, and we hear and see pride. Let's start with shame. I think when we hear about these new restrictions that, that come to us by the nature of God's Word and His righteousness, some of us respond 
to, to this and to God and feel exposed. We may feel forgiven of our sin and that God accepts us, but we still feel shame. We still, we, we still feel seen, perhaps, through the lens of our sin, as if there is no way we could actually ever measure up and be worthy of such love and grace. Therefore, we begin to tell ourselves a story which becomes our identity. And the story and identity that we take on in shame is that we are bad. That we ourselves, we don't just do bad, we are bad. We see this in the story of the prostitutes and the tax collectors and sinners in the New Testament. We see this prevalent in our own groups, in our own hearts, in our own families, when the way we try to appease someone or something is by taking on all of the shame, taking on all of the guilt on ourselves. It happens in our hearts, believing that sin is too great that prevails in our lives, too great for God's love. So then when we start to look at Jesus, he, he doesn't become, and, and, and rightly so in our imaginations, the liberating king of our soul. He becomes simply a new law of which we could never live up to, producing more shame and more discontent. In other words, the life in Christ feels just as defeating as the old life of sin. It's just now framed in different language. See, see in this, in this obstacle, in this obstacle, we write a story and take on an identity that we are bad, and that's shame. Secondly, others of us respond to these restrictions of righteousness and the law, and we feel proud, right? This is the preacher's kid in the room, like me. We have, we have a sense of religious independence. We consider the do's and don'ts, right, of the Bible, and we feel like, oh, I've avoided the really bad things, and I've done generally a good job following the main ideas that God has laid out in the Bible, and therefore, the story and identity that we take on is that we're good. You know, we're not perfect, but who is, right? That little caveat, little asterisk spiritually, but generally we're good. We see this in the stories of the Pharisees and the religious elites, and perhaps most interestingly, this is the disciples of Jesus. His closest followers are less inclined to shame than they are with pride, constantly vying for positions of power within Jesus' kingdom, thinking that they are good and should take such positions. See, in our hearts, I think that we believe in that, that our sin was actually never really that bad. We never really did anything that crazy in our life, so we must not have been that hard to save. And therefore, we treat the new life and the Bible in general as just a blueprint of how we can live our lives under our own power and our own ability. The Bible simply tells me what to do, and in and of myself, I can do it. So in this obstacle, we write a story and our identity about ourselves that we're just good, that we're good, and that's pride. Now, something even happens in, in this, so let, let's just keep fleshing out this thought a little bit, because I think our impulse is to tell people who feel bad that they are good, that if you're feeling bad, I want to remind you how good you are, and, if, and to people who think they're really good, let me tell you how bad you are, right? So our impulse to people who tell different stories to themselves is to just take the other narrative and put it on them. If you think you're good, actually you're bad. If you think you're bad, actually you're good. The problem with that cycle is that it just breeds more bondage. It just makes us feel, and it actually, in actuality, it binds us up even more in sin. See, the real issue with these obstacles is that they become our stories and our identity. We both, in doing that, dismiss the true story that of God's liberating work. See, in shame, we believe that we are still in bondage to sin. 
And in pride, we believe that we got out of the chains ourselves. But the new freedom and the righteous restrictions that come with this new life do not tell us that we are bad, nor do they tell us that we are good. The story is that we are free, that we have been freed by God, and that God is a God who frees us. Are you with me at church? See, the story of freedom is that God has liberated us from bondage. And the obstacles of freedom are these beliefs that we are either good or bad. Now, what restriction remains? What is the restriction of freedom? Look back at Isaiah 9, now verses 5 and 6. God help us. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We see a couple things here. First, we see all of the instruments and garments of war being burned up. They are no longer needed. There's victory. There's peace. There's celebration. Hope has come, as we learned last week, through work and suffering of another, and victory has been secured. But secondly, we see the child born is born with utter authority. The government is on his shoulders. His name is above every name. He is God. He is Father. He is Prince. In other words, there is authority here. You see, there is freedom from burdens and oppression, and death, and darkness, but that freedom comes with new restrictions, namely a new kingdom and a new king. We are not freed to our own authority. Do you see that? We are freed to a new authority. We are not freed from authority. We are freed to a new authority. However, this is so critical. This is not trading one hapless bondage for another. One authority for another authority. This restriction is different. This king is different. Notice, the one with authority is wonderful. Look at that. Don't miss that, church. The one with authority is a counselor. He is a prince, but of what? Peace. Do you see? This is an authority which does not crush and kill and shame or even puff up, but a king who loves In short, that is the restriction that you and I now have with freedom in Christ. We are restricted by love. Love is a liberating restriction. Love is a liberating restriction. As many Christian philosophers have agreed upon through the years, love, unlike the way we often conceive of it today, love requires us to give up personal autonomy. A lot of times our conception of love is allowing people to do as they please. That's how we even speak about love. I love you, therefore you do you. But what the Scriptures teach about love and what I think we understand fundamentally when it really comes down to what love looks like in real space and time is that love is mutual. Love is relational. In order to be in love or even have a friendship which is built on love, I must necessarily give up my rights. I have to give up my urge to do as I please. So love actually means restrictions. 
This is what happens when we make even a marriage covenant. We forsake all others. others. We make a, a, a binding covenant of love that I will be faithful. I will be true to you. I will give up the search for other things that maybe I think I feel like I need at a particular time, and I will submit myself wholly and completely to you. Now, with this conception of love, I think we might think that maybe there is one type of love that is not mutual which does not require both parties to give up their rights. We think maybe divine love is like this. We, we may assume that God does not give up anything, but simply demands upon his followers these, his will, his word, his righteousness, his, his laws, and that they, they would be bound up in obeying him. But that's not the truth of the Scriptures at all. That's not the kind of love that God gives us at all. That's not the kind of law that God gives us at all. That's not the story of our freedom. That's not the story of love. Rather, hear this from 1 John 3. Oh God, may we believe this today. John, 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, through the incarnation, through Jesus' life on earth, through his death, he demonstrates to us the restriction of freedom, a love that gives up rights. Dr. Timothy Keller put it this way in his book, The Reason for God. In the most radical way, God has adjusted to us. In his incarnation and atonement, in Jesus Christ, he became a limited human being, vulnerable to suffering and death. On the cross, he submitted to our condition as sinners and died in our place for our sins and to forgive us. Through Jesus, God says this to us, I'll be restricted by my love for you. I'll be bound to you through relationship and covenant with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And therefore, what does the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? He says, the love of Christ constrains us. It controls us. It captivates us. It binds us up and restricts us. Are you with me? That love is the restriction of freedom in Christ. Isaiah was talking about two liberations. The freedom of Israel from Egypt and the freedom of all of God's people for all time. And so when we speak of a victory and a king, he, he is not just speaking only in the short term, but the long term hope of God's people who find freedom in a new type of restriction, in a child who was born king. A king whose kingdom is unlike any other. A king who is mighty and a counselor. A king who is God, yet wonderful. A prince who is authoritative, yet he is peaceful and loving. A king who has full authority and yet makes himself vulnerable. In other words, a king who is love. A king who tells us not that we are good or that we are bad, but a king that says, you are free in my love. Heavenly Father, help us to believe this. Help us to trust and submit to this restriction of love that we might know what true freedom is. Who we are, who you are. Help us, Father, to know that freedom does not come when restrictions are taken away, but when the right restriction of love is fully constraining us.
I pray for my sisters and brothers. They may be in a situation right now and they're struggling to love somebody. Struggling to demonstrate love to them. Perhaps even giving reason and credence in their own heart and mind about why they don't have to love this person because of the laws of this world, of the freedom that they have to walk away. Father, help them, help me, help us to know what it means to be constrained by love today. Help us to know what it means to love others as God in Christ has loved us. Help us to be compelled by the King who came a child, but the King who came with authority, the King who came with peace, the King who came with vulnerability and joy and love and power and might and all authority in His hand. God, there's no one like You. Thank You for loving us, well beyond our deserving. In Jesus' name, amen.